everyone, back again. Now we're going to continue on with episode four. And this episode is going to start on part five titled The Division of Profit into Interest and Profit of Enterprise, specifically on chapter 21, which is the first chapter within part five. And we're going to cover all the way up to chapter 26 titled The Accumulation of Money Capital and Its Influence on the Rate of Interest. Now, before jumping into it, don't want to give too much of a kind of whatever intro here. You know what we're doing here. If you happen to have stumbled upon this, go check out episode one. But more importantly, go check out the episodes I did on Adam Smith, David Ricardo and Capitals Volume 1 and Volume 2. For those of you who've been listening this whole way, I really commend you. You're doing the Lord's work. You're doing some kind of deity's work. And uh, if you want to help me out, you know, sharing this would really be the best way to do it, but you could help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. Or you could find ways to follow me other than on here. And you can find uh, links for those things in the descriptions if you want to help me out that way. So yeah, don't want to take up any more of your time with that. Let's jump into chapter 21 here, Interest Bearing Capital, the beginning of part or part five begins. So just as a quick reminder, the end of the last episode discussed commercial capital. Now we're going to consider interest-bearing capital. So interest-bearing capital refers to a situation where somebody with money lends money to someone else who will then make a profit and then have some of that profit go back to the person that lent that money. So this will be interest. And, you know, we chances are we all know what this is. You lend somebody money and say, you have to pay me back this amount of money that I've lent you plus 10% after a month or after two, however long. Now that 10%, that addition on top of what you lent out is interest. So let's say, for example, Bill, the lender, lends out $100 to Sally for her business. So Sally spends $100 on machines that earn her, coupled with real human labor, earn her $120. So let's say the interest rate is 5%. That means Sally is going to have to pay back 105 to that lender because you have the $100 that was first lent plus 5% interest, which would be $5 on top of that 100. So at the end of the day, because she earned 120 from her business, she's been able to keep $15. So they've both come out ahead. The lender has earned $5 and Sally, the capitalist, has earned $15. So the equation for this looks like this, and this isn't totally important, but just for anyone who's curious. So if you would recall, the movement of capitalist production goes Commodity turns into money, which is turned into commodity prime, more commodity in the form of means of production that have been valorized, that can then earn you more money and so on. And with commercial capital, the process goes, you start with money, you buy a commodity, and then you sell that commodity to earn you money prime, more money on top of the initial money that you earned. So in this situation with interest, what you have is money lent out as money, the exact same thing, so $100 lent out as $100, to then do the process, uh, the capitalist process, to make a commodity, which is then sold to make money prime, which part of that is then given back in the form of money prime back to the uh, lender. 
So normally, under capitalist production, the process of valorization goes as follows. You know, as, as I've already said, you have money, you invest it in your business, and then you're going to use that to then um, earn more money that will then work to go back into your business to earn you more money and so on. With interest, on the other hand, or when interest enters the equation, something else happens. Money is lent out to be valorized somewhere else. So the investor likely won't have any kind of stake in the capitalist production process at all, or the lender won't have any stake in that. So their money is just going to valorize. It's just going to be turned into, like in the case of Sally and Bill, from $100 to $120 by somebody else. So from the perspective of the lender, the money itself takes on the form of capital. It is seen as being self-valorizing, as though money just somehow equals more money. Now, some economists, even socialist ones like Proudhon, viewed this as a negative phenomenon because it was essentially a situation in which the investor or the lender would earn money for doing nothing. They didn't put any production in motion or put in any effort, really. And he viewed this as a negative phenomenon. And while that's kind of true, Marx clarifies that really it's the whole capitalist production process that is uh, usury. It is uh, the act of stealing from laborers. And it doesn't really matter that there are these other people taking this non-working cut because there are many instances, of course, where capitalists do absolutely nothing, yet earn exorbitant profit on top of uh, everything or because of all the surplus value they extract from laborers. And it kind of reminds me I was listening to a podcast that's titled the, um, I believe it's titled The Dream, in which the host uncovers uh, the way that pyramid schemes work, various pyramid schemes. And throughout, there's this idea that pyramid schemes are this evil element within our economy, within our lives, and it's something we have to weed out. And the reason that they say it is, is because it is exploitative. I mean, there's no guarantee that you're going to actually earn money by investing your own money within a pyramid scheme, and that's really the nefarious side of it. And I think that pyramid schemes are reprehensible, and they have to be challenged and really done away with uh, yesterday. But at the same time, pyramid schemes can serve uh, a beneficial purpose for the broader capitalist economy because they can seek, or they can, by existing and by drawing all of our attention, they can naturalize the capitalist economy as not itself being exploitative. So then people who have been indoctrinated within the capitalist mode of production can look at pyramid schemes and say, oh, that is evil. All the evil is over there. What we have is not evil. What we have is not exploitative. Where the point is to really show that pyramid schemes are an intensification of the logic of capitalism that is itself exploitative. And they are both bad. They're very much both bad, not defending either here. But that's how I interpret Proudhon imagining these interest, this interest-bearing capital through lenders as being like this ultimate evil. Of course, what that does is it erases the fact that the very, at the very core of the capitalist mode of production is the same evil, but on a much broader scale. 
Now, with, with that being said, I would really recommend this podcast. It's really quite good. It's called The Dream uh, that you can go and check out. That it's a, I found it quite entertaining and enlightening. But anyways, I digress. The difference, though, between this process of interest-bearing capital and the regular one of just general, um, I guess, capitalist production, as Marx says, he says that it is a superficial form separated from the real movement whose form it is. Now, what else is different is that for the person lending out money, their valorization of capital, the money that they've lent that just valorizes itself, is not guaranteed because somebody else has to do it. And they already have tons of money already. Chances are it doesn't really matter. But it is guaranteed as a kind of um, contractual agreement. So even if the capitalist is unable to turn that money into more money, they're going to need to pay it back somehow. And so they'll often get screwed over because they'll have to, they'll be in debt. So in this whole process, money ceases to be only a means of exchange and it itself becomes a form of capital. It becomes a way by which people can earn money in itself. That is, Money can be the way to earn more money. And so money takes on the form as a kind of means of production. And I'm using that term lightly here and very loosely. Marx doesn't say it in those terms. He doesn't say money is a means of production. But it is insofar as it valorizes itself. It is able to create value just as though the means of production are as, uh, as labor. So it assumes the form of a kind of commodity in this setting. But this is a, another interesting element of this is that normally a commodity's price is going to be determined by the cost of constant capital that went into making it, plus the price of the variable capital wages, plus the surplus. And that would apply for any commodity, be it shoes or basketballs or whatever. But that doesn't apply here in determining what the interest rate is going to be. That is, in determining what the capitalist or what the borrower is going to have to pay back to the person lending the money as, as interest. And the issue gets further complicated when we think about the ways, and I've already intimated this, with the exchange of other commodities, their price is going to be determined or their value is measured by the money represented in those things. Now, if we do that with money, all we are saying is that money is equal to money. But that's not really what's going on here, because Bill, who lent out $100 to Sally, somehow is able to turn that $100 into $105. So it's not as though $100 is equal to itself in value. $100 is actually equal to $105. And, and how can this be? How can money equal more money, more than itself? Well, one way that it can do it is by the promise of the capital that it can afford later on, what he calls potential capital. So that $100 can be worth 105 in that there is the promise that there can be uh, new things purchased with that extra money that will be necessary with the use of that extra money. But this makes it difficult to, to ascertain an actual value of money. How come $100 is actually equal to 105 with an interest rate of 5% and not 110? 
which would be an interest rate of 10% or 120, interest rate of 20% and so on. Why is an interest rate what it is? And I just saw that the Bank of Canada just released their interest rate for the year as kind of an aside. And you can check out your own country's interest rate quite easily uh, just online if you were interested in that. And I would like to add that I'm not sure how this conversation has developed since Marx. I don't know if there's a more concrete idea about what constitute interest rates uh, now, but at the time, certainly, and I think, and I think till now, it is a very mysterious thing. So normally, supply and demand is going to determine the natural price of a given good. And this is also going to be determined by the socially necessary labor that goes into that good and whether how far away like each enterprise deviates from that norm will determine whether or not they're going to make they're going to break even, they're going to make a little extra or make a little less. But on the total, you're going to be able to arrive at a natural rate of, uh, of, of cost or the natural market price when supply and demand are somewhat equal. Now, we can't really do that in the rate of interest largely because people are going to just charge whatever interest rate they want. You're going to get a very in different interest rate between... Um, I don't know, between a bank, like in Canada, and between it and, and, and an established kind of loan shark or quick payment, uh, payday type lending place. And in each instance where there is an interest rate decided upon, that interest rate is establishing the value of the money lent. If the interest rate is 10% on $100, what that is saying is that $100 is actually equal to $110. And now that puts us here into chapter 22, division of profit, rate of interest, natural, or division of profit, rate of interest, and natural rate of interest. Okay, so how is interest calculated? Well, it can't really exceed profit earned from business or from borrowed person because then they wouldn't be able to actually pay it back. So if the borrower, in the case we already talked about, Sally, earns that $120 from their capital, they couldn't then pay uh, 25 with a 25% interest on the $100 that she borrowed. She couldn't pay 25 back because then she'll just be earning less than she's making and that can't be sustained. So interest rate has to be greater than zero or it has to be, and it, and it has to be less than total profit earned. So on its face, it makes sense then that as the profit rate goes up, and more profit is earned, the interest rate will also go up because interest is going to be determined in accordance with the profit rate. And we're going to find later on that there's a very similar, uh, there's a similarity here between interest and rent. But that's, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. So interest is going to need to come out of profit rate. So profit rate goes up, likely interest rate is going to go up, but there are exceptions. So if there's a period of crisis, when many people are borrowing money, uh, lenders might raise their interest rates. And in this crisis, the overall average profit rate may be quite low, and there's less money going around, and so lenders, the few people who do have disposable income that they can lend out, because the demand is so high for that money at that time, they could then raise their prices, raise their interest rates. And as, this, as capitalism progresses, and more and, more and more wealth kind of floats around, there may be fewer and fewer people seeking to borrow money, the demand might come down, 
interest rate might come down, which also happens to uh, run in accordance with the idea of the tendential fall in the rate of profit as profit rate comes down. So that makes sense. Anyways, there are a bunch of different factors that are going to affect interest rates, profit rates. To some extent, they are tethered, but you know there are exceptions to this rule. So it is still possible to come up with an average interest rate. Technically, if you were to compile all of the different interest rates all of the different people are paying and uh, added them and then divided by the number of people, you could come out with an average interest rate. No problem, you have that. Whether or not it's actually going to be indicative of the general uh, natural rate of interest is probably not going to be correct, and that is because the actual proportion of interest is going to be determined in each individual moment between a lender and a borrower. So the lender is going to say, hey, what kind of profits are you going to make on this? How much money are you going to make so that I can determine how much interest I charge for this? Because if I lend you $100 and you're going to make 1000 on that $100, I want an interest rate of maybe 100%. So they're going to have to pay back 200 to the lender while they keep their 800 that they earned uh, on top of the, their invested capital, really. Technically 700 but anyways. Now, he makes an interesting point here to say that while you can't really come up with an average interest rate, certainly not really at the time, it has a concrete basis that is absent from determining the profit rate. So the profit rate might be affected by many, many, many different factors. Many different commodities and many different enterprises might have effects on other enterprises, other commodities. Labor might have uh, an effect and, and so on. Whereas with interest rate, because you're only dealing with one commodity here, it does have a kind of firm basis to exist. It has a firm ground to rest on. Even, you know, there's still speculation, there's still going to be crises, there's still going to be uh, problems. It does rest upon a somewhat firm basis, being a single commodity that self-valorizes, and that is money. So really, any interest rate decided between any two people is its natural price or its market price because it is just represented in money, which is itself uh, the representation of value. So money, interest rate equals money, which equals representation of value, which equals money, and so on. Now, I want to do something I don't normally like doing, and that is I want to read a little segment from the text here. And I'm taking this from the uh, Penguin edition, the really thick thousand-page Penguin one, the Penguin Classics one, which, not a sponsor, but anyways. Uh, on page 491, the second paragraph, I'm pretty much going to read a couple of chunks out of this paragraph. And these chunks speak to the way that interest is somewhat firm and homogenous in its accordance to or being connected to a single commodity, money. So he writes this. These are some of the reasons why the general rate of profit presents a blurred and hazy picture compared with the sharply defined rate of interest, which although its level fluctuates, always confronts the borrowers as fixed and given because it fluctuates in the same for them all. In the same way, changes in the value of money do not prevent it from having the same value in relation to every commodity, and market prices of commodities fluctuate daily, 
although this does not prevent them from being noted every day in the reports. It is just the same with the rate of interest, which is noted just as regularly as the price of money. This is because capital itself is offered here as a commodity in the money form. The establishment of its price is therefore the establishment of its market price, just as with all other commodities. And so the rate of interest presents itself always as a general rate of interest, as so much for so much money as quantitatively, uh, quantitatively determined. The rate of profit, on the other hand, can vary even within the same sphere, given the same market price according to the different conditions in which individual capitals produce the same commodity. For the profit rate on an individual capital is not determined simply by the market price of the commodity, but rather by the difference between market price and cost price. And these various rates of profit, firstly within the same sphere and then within the various different spheres, can be equalized only through constant fluctuations. Now, I just wanted to read that just so people know that I'm not making up this idea that interest rate is somewhat static, whereas profit rate can be affected in so many different ways. Because I think on its face, it would seem as though it were the other way around, where interest is just always going to fluctuate, always going to be determined in the last, you know, in immediate instances and not have any actual kind of tangible connection to anything. And again, that was on page 491. So that puts us here into chapter 23 titled Interest and Profit Enterprise. So interest is a part of profit, as we've said. It can only happen if there is excess floating around. So if the capitalist, if the borrower, if there are people out there who can uh, borrow money, earn some extra from that money, and then give some of that extra back to the person lending it. Now, of course, this isn't always the case. Like somebody might be struggling with, I don't know, gambling addiction. They might borrow money and the lending person doesn't care because if the person can't pay it off, they'll just take their house or their car or whatever. So it is in the lender's interest to just always be lending out money as frequently as possible in order to keep earning more money. Money will just beget more money in this situation. So we know that interest is just a part of profit, but to the capitalist, this quantitative distinction, that is the distinction between interest and the distinction bet between that and profit minus interest, becomes a qualitative difference, not just a matter of being different uh, with numbers. So what this means is that in the capitalist economy, interest comes to assume a kind of natural element of that uh, economy, where it just seems as though interest-bearing capital always existed, and that it is a natural product of uh, lending out money, whereas the profit rate is then naturalized to be the amount of profit earned minus the amount of interest paid back to the uh, lender. And so profit then isn't just what is earned on top of production. Profit comes to equal what you've earned minus interest. And that becomes what the profit rate is to the capitalist. Now these appear, that is interest-bearing capital and profit capital, you know, normal capital within production that turns, that turns a profit, appear to be two separate elements that are necessary for one another. And they take on qualitatively 
different forms. Of course, that hides the fact that the interest-bearing capital is only possible by taking a chunk out of the original profit-bearing capital in production. So interestingly, this qualitative distinction between profit and interest exists when the capitalist doesn't borrow any money. They essentially, uh, that is when they don't borrow money for somebody else. And I, I really like this point that Marx makes here because when the capitalist exists as a capitalist, they are paying themselves some money. You know, they're not just taking all of their profit and throwing it back into their business. They want to live luxurious lives. You know, they want to take a good chunk of that money too and buy yachts with it and buy fancy cars and big houses. So they pay themselves as though they borrowed capital from themselves and view the rest of it as the natural result of production. So it's almost like they view that amount that they give to them back to themselves as the interest and the rest that goes back into production as profit. So this leads him to make a pretty substantial claim. And that is that profit of enterprise does not form an antithesis with wage labor, but rather an antithesis with interest. And that is because profit rates are going to be determined by the natural rate of interest or the established rate of interest, where a capitalist is not gonna be able to make any money uh, or the amount of money they're gonna make is determined by how much they're gonna to have to pay back in interest, which is gonna determine their profit rate. Wage labor is not going to have this effect, and certainly at the time when there weren't uh, strong, there wasn't strong legislations establishing minimum wages. There were to some extent, but not like quite as uh, established as it is today. Wage labor didn't pose as much of a problem to earning profit, and it doesn't today. Don't think that you know in, the, in Canada here, like a thirteen dollar minimum wage is really doing anything, but it. Uh, the, the point being, of course, that interest is what stands in opposition to profit, and it limits profit. So the lender and the capitalist are, antithet are antithetical to one another, even if they are the same person, like with I, where I said that the capitalist pays themselves. And so they almost take on a dual character. They are both a capitalist and a lender earning interest. And even if they are the same person, they exist in an antithetical relationship to one another. They conflict. And this distinction, this conflict, is super important for capitalist production for one other very important reason. And that is that the capitalist can then point to the lender as the unproductive one. And what this does is it serves the end of making the capitalist feel as though they are actually part of the production process, when in fact, all they're doing is exploiting the labor of others. But because there are these people out there that make money for doing absolutely nothing, they could then, the capitalist can then make it seem as though they are actually buddy-buddy, they're actually on the same side as the workers. So this whole discussion of the lender and the capitalist being antithetical to one another is assumes more of a, this is more of an observation about how things appear to the capitalist, not necessarily how things actually are. So it appears as though here then that 
production is somehow separate from capital and that money capital is just capital earning more capital without any work. And this just hides the fact that even in capitalist production, it's almost by magic, just like the capitalist views the lenders. It's only by magic that capital is actually able to valorize itself. Somehow you're able to get money by um, selling, you know, you have money by commodity and somehow are able to make that more money through some hocus pocus. So profit here appears as a kind of uh, wage for the capitalist. At least that's what they tell themselves. I mean, this is all the way that they sell this idea to, to themselves and how vulgar economists like to think about it. It appears as though that the capitalist is just earning a wage like anybody else, and they are beholden to the lender. And to some extent, there is a truth to that. I mean, lending is not, is not a great thing either, but they are able to hide the fact that they are complicit in that exact same, uh, I guess, schematic, the this, this same schema, that make it so that they are able to earn more and more money from less and less and to exploit labor. And not to mention that, of course, all of this just hides the fact that profit and interest really only both derive from surplus value, from workers' labors being, labor being exploited, the labor power being exploited. So that puts us in chapter 24, interest-bearing capital as the superficial form of the capital relation. So interest-bearing capital, that is money just valorizing itself, becoming money prime as though by magic, is the most superficial and fetishized form of capital, that is money that creates more money. It is totally fetishized because as a commodity, money valorizes, it, valorizes itself without production. And this is the ultimate tautology. Money has become self-valorizing capital that is represented in money. Now, earlier we, went, we mentioned that the capitalist can take on this kind of dual role as a capitalist in production and as somebody paying themselves interest. And this shows the extent to which the entire process of capitalist accumulation is really just the accumulation of compound interest, in Marx's words. Now, I really want to stress the absurdity of the whole thing, even in the most rudimentary form of capitalist production without lenders, without like banking lenders existing in certain places, just sitting on hordes of money that they're able to lend out. Where in capitalist production, you're able to just transform something into greater than itself. You're almost able to create matter, which is just totally absurd. And what is even more absurd about this, as he's already shown, is that the profit rate falls as capitalism progresses. And additionally, the amount of value bestowed or then contained within commodities made decreases. And the reason that it decreases is because there's less living labor going into making these objects, making these commodities, and there's more reliance upon automation. Now, to some extent, uh, I don't think Marx fully grasped how globalization would affect this process, how facilitated means of exploitation of cheap labor in different parts of the world would affect this process. At least we don't get that in the three volumes of Capital here. And so despite the fact that there is so much technology pointing to automation, so many industries still seek real living labor 
overseas. So American companies would go to Mexico, Bangladesh, Taiwan to get China to get super cheap labor in order to keep their profits super high, which signals that there's so much more to be earned out of real living labor, even if it means transporting goods across the world, transporting goods all around the world, it is still cheaper to do it that way. It is still more possible to earn more that way than it is to rely exclusively upon automation. So something like um, in North America, like a robot tax or a tax on what um, machines are making in terms of, of money for capitalists. If there is a tax, we have to also reckon with the fact that the only way that this is made possible is largely because these industries are still seeking cheap labor overseas. And so while it might be all well and good, you know, certain people on earth can live in a, uh, at least ostensibly live in a kind of tech utopia, that is going to be dependent upon people still being exploited just unimaginably all across the world. Which is why it's important when imagining a post-capitalist world to include a global perspective, to include other people that are going to, that will also no longer be exploited here. And I think that we get this in Marx, you know, workers of the world unite, uh, but I often see it get excluded in, in certain uh, Marxist circles. And that, I'm digressing, that puts us into chapter 25, Credit and Fictitious Capital. Now, this chapter uses many quotes from many different legislative bodies, from different political economists, from politicians, from uh, capitalists about trade between India and England. And I'm not going to recount all of these different letters, all of these different reports, because there's just so much content here. Uh, so I'm just going to give the highlights about what Marx analyzes in them. So in considering the title of the chapter, Credit and Fictitious Capital, he focuses on commercial and bank credit here not state credit, which would be a, he's, that's kind of out of the scope of what he wants to discuss here. So here he considers um, paper money as distinct from valuable money. And money here can be thought of in a few different ways. So you have, you have paper money. You also have like government bonds, which is like um, an amount of money that, you know, if you pay a certain amount to the government, they could give you a bond that stands in for a certain degree of money kind of IOU from the government, or you could be talking about metallic money, like gold, things that are valuable, like gold or silver. Now, the history of money is interesting, and the way that Marx conceptualized it is, I think, to some extent, a little bit of an anti antiquated way to, to look at the formation of money, and he draws upon Aristotle and other old-school ideas about how money formed. But the way, okay, so the way that he imagines money forming is that some people had money and like in the form of gold and silver and there was certain risks associated with that you know it might get stolen it might be um might not might might not be easily movable through transport cuz it's heavy and so various banks or what at the time I'm just calling banks various um enterprises opened up that would say hey you know I can help you move your money I'll hold on to it I'll protect it and here's this paper representation of the amount of your gold that I have. 
and that could then be exchanged uh, with other people. So you could say you could be given this IOU for, I don't know, two pounds of gold in reserve. And then you could say you could go up to somebody who has a house that you like and say, hey, I have this IOU that you could take to the bank to take out this two pounds of gold. Can I have your house for it? You know, this is a very basic way that money um, began as a kind of universal currency. Of course, this excludes the fact that there were other factors here, like state power and state control that mandated the use of money. But, you know, put that aside for now. Now, as paper money could um, be accumulated, this opened up the door for credit and for the promise of earning more money. So if you didn't necessarily have money on you, you could give the promise, this an IOU, that you'll pay somebody for it later. And this will open up the door for, and Adam Smith writes about this, and Marx writes about this in other places, that this made it possible for people to start opening businesses that previously couldn't. So they could go to the bank and say, hey, uh, here's my plan. With this plan, I'm going to be able to make X number of dollars. Will you loan me, I don't know, a thousand pounds to a thousand dollars to open this business that will make me X amount? And they'll say, yeah, sure. Here's a credit. Here's a thousand dollars in credit. Have fun. So banks can do this or any enterprise can do this because they borrow money from people. They accumulate money en masse from people and pay them less then they are going to charge people to borrow that money, which is really what happens when you open up a bank account. Like in Canada, you open up a tax-free savings account or you have a, a sum of money in a high-interest savings account. Like that money is earning money because there are investments going on. That money is being lent out to other people and you are earning money for having put your money in this place. And one of the other consequences of this is that it's going to open the door for speculation because you're able to you know, speculate you're going to earn X number of dollars or other people are going to be able to look at you and speculate whether you're going to be whether that, you know, you're going to earn the amount of money you say you're going to earn. And hence the stock market, at least we'll talk about this more as we go on, but the stock market opening up as a possibility for other people to have a part in production, what Marx says is kind of a um, an ideal image or a way to conceptualize a post-capitalist world to some extent, which we'll get into in one of the next parts. So if production ensues without actual money, that is only on credit or the promise of money, what you can have is a situation in which you are able to produce a lot because you're existing on credit, but maybe you don't have a buyer for all that stuff. So all of this production was able to unfold without you actually having the means to cover the cost of it. So it's almost like production happened out of thin air. It was like a hocus pocus that created the possibility of production that couldn't be paid back. So commodities were made almost for nothing. They were made for less than it costs to make them. It, it's like a total, uh, it's mind bending. Um, and anyways, that puts us here into chapter 26, where I'll, I'll stop here.